Hey guys, what's going on? It's Stephen Ellsworth from the Lace Em Up podcast. Today we are going to be doing an exclusive interview with the one and only Colin Teske. I've known this guy for a long time. In 2013, we graduated from the same radio program, the Algonquin College Radio Broadcasting Program in Ottawa, Ontario. Uh, back then, he started a podcast called The Good, The Bad, The Teske. It's been picked up by a few radio stations since then. Uh, he now works with uh, Extra 90.5 in Peterborough. He's the color commentator of the Peterborough Peets, among other things. And we hadn't chatted in quite some time. We usually chat a lot about hockey, so I thought uh, we'd do an exclusive interview. So uh, without further ado, I'll let Colin take things over from here. Colin, what do you do? Hey, so I'm Colin Teske. I am the co-host of The Regulars, which airs Monday to Friday on Talk Sports Radio Extra 90.5. I also am the host of the Good, the Bad, the Teske podcast, which also airs on Extra 90.5 on weekends, Saturday and Sunday. I am also a part-time sportscaster for Sportsnet 590 The Fan and 680 News. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> and, and, sorry, and color commentator of Peter O'Pete and the host of the Pete's Tailgate Show as well. All right. So uh, first off, we're going to talk about the Peterborough Peets because, after all, you kind of cover the Peterborough Peets a lot uh, where you work in Peterborough. Um, they reside in the OHL's Eastern Conference, and you kind of know the Western Conference is better than the East when the number one team in the East has fewer goals than the eighth-place team in the West. Uh, but even then, the Peets still got 48 victories, even with their plus-18 goal differential. Uh, 134 goals at home, the sixth highest in the OHL. They went 24-7-3 at the Peterborough Memorial Center this season. Um, last year, they were fairly decent, to statistically speaking, but they really took things up a notch this year, I found. Um, their power play especially, it went from 19th last year to 7th this year. It jumped from 14.8% to 20.6%. Their penalty kill was dead last a year ago. They finished 8th a year later. So my first question is, what changed with this Peterborough Peets team? You know what it was, Steve, and this is what the coaching staff hammered home all the time, and I think it was so true when you look at how successful this team was all year, and that is they had a complete buy-in this year from everybody, whereas in years past they had some individual players who weren't exactly following the system that Jody Hall wanted to play. And basically what that means is they had a really good leader, a captain in Brandon Profit, who was an overager this year, and he was kind of the one who was able to not only make it a system that everyone wanted to play, but he was also the guy that was going to hold people accountable. And you really did see that in a lot of areas this season. There wasn't just one or two guys or a line that was scoring and contributing to this team. Before they played Mississauga in the playoffs here in round three, you know, they had 19 players on their team that had at least a point in the first two rounds against Kingston and Niagara. And all season long, that's how difficult this team was to prepare against because they always had guys on their first line, their second line, their third line, their fourth line, and they had six really good defensemen and really good starting goaltending. So as one efficient unit, this is how this team was able to build so much success because there was not just one guy stepping up. They had a whole unit of players that bought in. And it kind of explains how um, they were able to breeze by the first two rounds. They Actually, the first two rounds were sweeps. They went 8-0. and um, But, again, they uh, go up against the Mississauga Steelheads in the Eastern Conference Finals, who beat uh, the Ottawa 67s, my own town team, in six games. Um, Peterborough drops the first three games to Mississauga. 
they get outscored 10 to 4 in those three matches and in games 2 and 3 they scored just 3 times on 53 shots and they gave up 50 plus shots in both games 107 shots combined and in those three games Peterborough's power play went 1 for 14 so my question is were the Peets outmatched by Mississauga in the grand scheme of things or was it a series that Peterborough kind of lost It's a really good question Steve it's a really good question. And when you look at losing four times to one particular team, and when you lose the deciding game 7 nothing, mm-hmm. I mean, it did look like a complete landslide. And I think part of it is Mississauga and how good they are. They have got unbelievable talent when you look at their forwards, when you look at the McLeod brothers, mm-hmm. Spencer Watson, Owen Tippett's going to be a top-five player. If you go down Mississauga's roster, and then you compare it to Peterborough, um, Mississauga has six players that you would automatically say, okay, you know what, they're better than anybody on the piece. You have to really get down there and say, okay, maybe Peterborough's seventh best player could be up there with some of Mississauga's top players. So they just, on paper, were a better team. You look at the, the draft picks that they have, and yes, it did look like a landslide from that standpoint. But to a man, when you, when you actually talk to the Peets, and when I did their exit interviews, uh, this week, and I talked to each individual about how they felt the series went. They all just felt they didn't stick to their game plan. And when they lost game one and two in Peterborough, they started to drift away from what they've been doing all season. And they started to play a lot more desperate. And when they played a lot more desperate, they opened themselves up to making mistakes. And Mississauga is that team. They love to play run and gun. They're great on the counterattack. They had a great power play. And Peterborough just fit into that. And Jody Hall was really, really disappointed at how the series went. And obviously, as a coach, you never want to be swept, especially losing the fourth game the way they did. And Jody Hall echoed that same statement, saying they just got away from playing what had got them to that point. And they started to be more individual. And they started to not believe that they could come back and beat this team. And that's what it was. But you can't take anything away from Mississauga. They're going to be a heck of a team. And whoever they play out of the West is going to have a really tough draw with the Mississauga Steelhead. Now, um, before we get to, to who's coming out of the Western Conference there, um, we all saw what happened uh, last year in the Eastern Conference with Niagara. They got hot at the right time, and this year um, a lot of their good players kind of left house because, you know, they were overagers or, you know, um, they were drafted by NHL teams, and the NHL teams were like, you know, you kind of done a lot in the OHL already. We want you to take that next step. Um, what's this Peterborough team look like next year? Do you think they can replicate this kind of success? I think so. I think so. And that's what a lot of people here believe as well. And I think to answer your other question, too, when they went up against Mississauga, no one on this team outside of Brandon Prophet had been to this stage before. Now that they have been to this stage, they know exactly how they have to play. And they know that they have to bring their game to the next level and there's not a lot of margin for error. They're going to return a lot of players next season that I think are going to have really good years. Uh, when I look at their overrangers, they're going to have Logan DeNoble back, it looks like. And I could really peg him as the team captain for next year, and I feel confident that he could be the team captain. And one player that really stepped up for this team and was kind of the, the really nice storyline you follow all year was this rookie, Semen Durargachinsev. He's about five foot five. Maybe 145 pounds soaking wet. He's not the biggest player. He's not the tallest player. But he's got amazing hands and amazing vision. As a rookie in the Ontario Hockey League, you sometimes have trouble playing to that level and getting ice time. 
Well, the Pates were able to give him many opportunities due to some injuries and some other circumstances. In the playoffs, he was their first-line center with Steve Lorenz, the overager, and a Carolina Hurricanes pick, and Nikita Karasilev, a Maple Leafs pick, and a four-year veteran in the OHL, and he never looked out of place. They're going to return him next year. He's going into his draft year. They've also got a top-ten pick in Pavel Gogolev coming back. So having gone to the Eastern Conference Final, and they're going to return a good chunk of players next year, I really think that Pedro can be near the top of the conference and can maybe go even further than they did a season ago. Yeah, that's going to be very tough for teams like the 67s and the Frontenacs because the last thing they want to hear is, oh, Peter Broca could be back at it again next year. Uh, now, in the meantime, uh, we know the Steelheads will won the Eastern Conference. Um, Erie and Owen Sound are battling it out for uh, the title in the Western Conference. Um, the Owen Sound attack finished with 102 points in the regular season, almost scored 300 goals. Uh, you look at the Otters, they scored over 300 goals this year. They had 63 goals for in the playoffs prior to Game 4 uh, against Owen Sound. And Erie has at least six players who, as of Wednesday afternoon, were averaging a point per game in the playoffs or better. Um, but then again, you know, there are a lot of good teams in the West. Um, the Otters needed seven games to get by the London Knights. Um, they were being tested by Owen Sound as well. If the fatigue factor comes into play, especially with Mississauga ending Peterborough's season in four games with all the rest that they have, do you think the Steelheads could actually win it all this year? They very well could, Steve, and that's what a lot of people in the Eastern Conference were saying. I know from talking to the Peets, that was something they brought up. They knew after they swept the first two rounds, and whatever happened against Mississauga, they were talking about this before the series, they thought, wow, okay, once we get to the OHL final, we're not going to have as much tread on the tires as someone over in the Western Conference, especially an Erie Otters team. I mean, if the Erie Otters and Owens have attack go to seven games, look at all the hockey, all the travel that they've had to do compared to a team like Mississauga. Now, that can be twofold, and that can also be an advantage to a team like Erie or Owens Sound. They've had to face a lot more adversity. They've been battle-tested through three rounds. And the Western Conference, I would argue, was the best conference in all of the CHL this year. And Erie and Owen Sound had to play those teams the whole entire regular season into the playoffs so they could be a team that knows exactly what to face and isn't going to be scared of any type of competition once they reach the finals. So it's going to be an interesting final no matter who makes it, but you can make the argument on both cases. I don't really have a clear answer for you, Steve, but... Um, I really think whoever makes it into the OHL final, it's going to be a very good series. Do you think it goes the distance? Do you think it goes seven games? The OHL final? Yeah. It's going to be tough. I mean, I really think if I'm going to make a prediction here, I think the Erie Otters are going to come out of the Western Conference. And I've been saying this all year. Um, this Erie Otters team is destined to win. They have to win because mm-hmm. they've been to this stage so many times. And when you look at the great teams the last five years, Steve, you've got the London Knights you have to work with. You've got the Windsor Spitfires. I mean, the Erie Otters are that team that, if you look back on it, and if they don't win this year, you're going to look back at these rosters, and you're going to scratch your head and say, how come this team couldn't win? They had all the star power in the world. How could this team not put it together and get it done? And having said all that, um, this is a team with great individual talent that has mm-hmm. a lot of great guys that are stat stuffers, but they don't get enough credit for how they play the game. They are very defensively responsible, and their back end, their blue line, 
is very underrated. When you watch a Fergus or a Sambrook, those guys don't get nearly enough credit for being shut-down defenders that can lock down anybody in this league. The only question mark for me is their goaltending. Other than that, this is a very well-rounded team that plays the right way, and Chris Knobloch has done a tremendous job year after year with all the turnover, losing a Connor McDavid. Everyone thought that Connor McDavid was the reason why Knobloch and the Otters were such a good team. With McDavid gone, they've been better without him. With guys like Dabrinkit and Strom and Radish, they've really picked up the slack, and they've built a really nice culture in Erie, but the one thing they're missing is that OHL final and a Memorial Cup berth, and I think they're going to do it this year. Yeah, well, uh, you also look at the Windsor Spitfires. They're hosting the Memorial Cup this year, so they still have them to contend with uh, if they win it all. Now, um, just taking a look at some of the prospects, we talked a bit about them uh, that uh, the Peterborough Peets have. Um, just taking a look at uh, the NHL Central Scouting's midterm rankings, uh, back in mid-January, 153 CHL players were listed on that list. Uh, the Pete Zachalant was 71st, Nick Isaacson was 168th, and uh, Cole Frazier was ranked 206 out of 214 skaters. And while he's not on this list this year because he was drafted by the Oilers last year in the fifth round, um, the big name for this team that pops into my mind is Dylan Wells. Um, this is a guy who really came into his own this year. His GAA in the playoffs following Game 3 was 2.13. 941 save percentage to go with that. And if you want further evidence as to how good this kid is, he scored in the dying minutes of round two against Kingston. The guy can score goals too, apparently. And um, in the regular season, he faced the second most shots in the OHL, picks up 33 wins. He had nine wins the year before, GAA of well over four. And it just seems that as the year went along, he just kept getting better and better and better. Is the sky's the is it is it a case of the sky's the limit for this kid? It really is, Steve, and I think you you outlined it very very well, and that's an excellent question and a good observation by you. Um, but look at the Edmonton Oilers right now; they're getting great goaltending from Cam Talbot, but they just got a absolute steal in the fifth round with Dylan Wells, and Dylan Wells is an interesting case study. He was the first goaltender taken in his OHL draft. That comes with a lot of expectations, mm -hmm. and it was a really tough year for him last year. Going into his draft year, we all know when you're 17, 18 years old, you're playing in the Ontario Hockey League, you've always dreamt about being drafted, but when you actually get there and you realize that scouts are always there to watch you, there's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure, and especially here in Canada where every couple of months, Sportsnet and TSN break down prospects. They have rankings, guys like Bob McKenzie, Craig Button, you know, they really do put the microscope even more on these players. Uh, for Dylan Wells last year, he did not go according to plan. It really didn't. Uh, he didn't win the starting role. Matt Mancina did. So he wasn't getting in the net consistently. The night that he did go in, he hadn't played in four or five games. There were scouts watching him. He was rusty. And he really did let that get to him. Mentally, he was not prepared for the season he had last year. He fell in the draft. And that comes with its own set of really unique mental hurdles that he, he was really probably expecting to go earlier, but had to sit around and wait the fifth round. You're talking about having to wait a whole entire day, mm -hmm. watch so many players get picked before you. And he finally gets his name called. He can put that aside. They, they traded Matt Mancina to the Mississauga Steelheads and the coaching staff said, look, you're going to be our guy this year. 
And when he had that kind of confidence and when he got that vote of confidence from the coaches, his game went to that next level that we all knew Dylan Wells could get to. He had the raw ability. He had all the physical tools. It was just putting it all together, and this year that's what he did. This is why Peterborough was able to win the Eastern Conference, and people don't talk about this enough. They got swept by the Mississauga Steelheads in that third round, Steve, but that double overtime game in Game 3, the only reason they got to overtime was because of Dylan Wells. He made over 50 saves in that game, and it was a shame that they couldn't win that game in overtime for Dylan because I really felt like if Dylan stole them that game in Game 3, we're probably still here talking about Peterborough and Mississauga and how tight that series series is right now, rather. Yeah, well, speaking of tight series, we're going to sw- switch gears to the NHL playoffs right now, and uh, it's probably the tightest I've seen. Um, as of April 17th, um, on April 17th, all four games went to overtime. The first time a slate of NHL games have all gone to overtime since 85. And after Friday the 21st, we had 15 overtime games. We had 20 all of last year. We got 18. We ended up finishing with 18 in round one. Each and every series had at least one game headed to overtime. And you look at the amount of one-goal games. Um, all six games in the Boston-Ottawa series were one-goal affairs. Four of those needed overtime. One of them needed two overtimes. The exact same case with all six games of the Washington-Toronto series. All decided by a goal. Only difference is they needed overtime five times instead of four. And then the biggest glaring example for me was the Anaheim-Calgary sweep, where if you exclude the empty netter by Anaheim with less than 10 seconds left in Game 4, all four games decided by a single tally. And it was a four-game sweep, like I said, by the Ducks, but it sure didn't feel like it. And uh, just looking at all the games that went to overtime in years past, uh, the the high, I believe, uh, for the NHL was 27. That was back in 2013, and uh, I think we're at least we have at least 20 overtime games now. We've already equaled the total of last year. And back when they started keeping track of one goal games in 87-88, um, the most we have seen of that in one playoffs is 51. That was back in 2007, the year the Sens went to the finals. As Sens fans, of course, I'm sure that all makes us smile. Um, this year, I think we have close to 30 one-goal games. And a classic example, um, both games in the Nashville-St. Louis series, both games in the Rangers-Sens series, all decided by a goal. So my question to you is, from your memory, from what you can recall, is this the closest playoffs that you've ever seen? Honestly, you just brought up all those stats, and I didn't even realize. But to be honest with you, yes, uh, this has been the closest NHL playoffs in terms of one-goal games and having teams that are so evenly matched that I can remember, Steve. I mean, in the salary cap era, I mean, this is exactly what Gary Bettman and the NHL want. They, they, they don't want there to be just one dominant team year after year. They want to spread that out throughout the league, and the salary cap has definitely done that, and we're seeing this right now in the NHL playoffs. Like, this is what they wanted when they drew it up, when they had the salary cap put in place. You don't know going into any game Who's going to come out on top and who has the edge? And, and momentum is a very funny thing, especially in these Stanley Cup playoffs. It doesn't seem like any team can quite bottle that momentum game to game. And, I mean, just look no further than that Nashville-Chicago series. Everyone thought Chicago, who have kind of been the darlings of the NHL, they've been the modern-day dynasty the last five, ten years. Mm-hmm. When they got swept by Nashville, 
that opened up a lot of eyes. But when you actually break down Nashville and the personalities they have, they've got four really good scoring lines. They've got about 10 or 12 players that scored 10 or more goals in the regular season. So they've got balanced scoring. They've got a great blue line. They've got Pecorine in net. And Nashville is just that one example of a team that was just ready and poised to take that next step. They shocked Chicago in the hockey world, and that's what's made this playoff so great. You look at the Ottawa Senators, too. Guy Boucher and those Senators are in every game. And people might chirp his system all they want, but this is what fans want. They want a winner, and now the Sens are two wins away from the Eastern Conference Final, and we're just seeing such great drama in every single series that, as a fan, you can't get enough. And we're going to talk about uh, the Sens uh, a little bit later on, but uh, getting to the most shocking storyline of the NHL playoffs, um, for me, it's it's got to be the Chicago Blackhawks. I mean, when you finish the year, the top team in the Western Conference, and not only do you get swept by Nashville, but you score three goals in four games, and you get swept in round one. That, in my opinion, is the shocker of all shockers. Is that the most shocking storyline for you, or is there another one that surprised you even more than that? No, I think the Chicago one to me is the most the most shocking. Um, when I look at their team, I picked them to go to the Stanley Cup final, Steve, so it shows you how much I know. I really didn't expect, expect them to get swept, um, but I think when you look at Chicago, top-heavy, Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves, Seabrook and Keith, they've really been loyal to those guys, and they've been interchanging players pretty well every year, and they've been able to find some nice gems to go in and out of their top six. I think this year you really saw just how you know, hard it is for a team like Chicago to be competitive year after year. They've just got too much money tied up to a few players, and it's going to be interesting to see what they do. I'm really, really curious as to what Stan Bowman's going to do in the offseason. Is he going to completely blow things up here? Is he going to tinker? Is he going to overreact? Because I look at Chicago now, two straight years where they've lost in the first round to divisional rivals in St. Louis and Nashville got an aging core. I really didn't expect them to go out this early. I thought that just experience alone was going to help them in the first round and make them go deep in the playoffs, but it shows how much I know. Yeah, well, um, I filled out my bracket, and three of my final four were out in round one, so I don't know much about anything, and the only team left standing is Washington, and look how well they're doing in the second round. So, And they're also the team I picked to win it all, the Washington Capitals, but... Anyways, um, getting back to Chicago for a second, actually, earlier in the week, they fired Mike Kitchen, the assistant coach. Apparently, I heard that Quenville wasn't the biggest fan of that. And they also traded a few days ago Scott Darling to the Carolina Hurricanes for a third-round pick in this year's draft. Uh, Darling is a pending UFA, but, you know, with the expansion draft coming, they're probably going to protect Crawford regardless. So um, that move probably didn't surprise a lot of people. Um, I want to ask you what your favorite storyline from the NHL playoffs is uh, so far. For me, and excuse my bias because I'm a Sens fan, it's just, it's got to be how they overcame adversity, all this adversity in one season. I mean, we all know what Craig Anderson and his family went through, how Mike Condon came in, saved their season. Uh, we all know the feel-good story of Clark MacArthur and how he emer- how he energized the team late in the regular season. Uh, Mark Mathot, um who, uh, of course, suffered that brutal finger injury and uh, how quickly he came back. And then, of course, the superhuman that is Eric Carlson and the year that he's had. Um, They really surpassed my expectations from day one to late April. And like you said, they're two wins away from the Eastern Conference Finals. 
um, that's that's got to be a successful year, in my opinion, regardless of how the rest of their season plays out. Well, you just nailed it, Steve, right? Like, all the adversity this team has had and how they were still able to keep their season on the rails, and things could have easily gone off the rails this season. I mean, it's difficult enough for a new coach to come in and have success right away with the current group that had had coach after coach after coach. That comes with its own unique set of difficulties, right? But then you factor in Craig Anderson was in and out of the lineup dealing with some personal matters. You lose a top six forward in Clark MacArthur in training camp, and you don't even know if he's going to be here in the league and if he can actually produce, given his concussion history. And you look at all the other things, too, when you look at Eric Carlson and the season he's been able to have and how he's really changed from just a purely offensive defenseman into a defensively-minded guy who can block shots, takes care of business in his own end first, and is also able to still chip in offensively. And you've got Eric Carlson, this offensively-minded defenseman. He's really tailored his game where he's taking care of business in his own end first. He's blocking shots. And you see them get by Boston by the skin of their teeth. They're doing the same thing against the New York Rangers. It's a fantastic storyline. And I finally feel like now that they've taken the first two games against New York, that they're really going to get the fans behind them. I don't want to get too much into the attendance issue, Steve, but it was something that really did fire me up this week when I saw people calling Ottawa fans not diehard. It's a weird relationship that Ottawa's had with their team over a decade. They've mm-hmm. been really mediocre ever since they went to the Stanley Cup final back in 2007. They have a very crazy owner that likes to speak his mind and I think has really alienated fans with his comments. He's called out fans before as well, and I think that's made a lot of fans have a lot of angst towards this team. You throw in Daniel Alfredson leaving abruptly and going to Detroit, not feeling like he could win here. Ottawa fans, I think, really did feel like this team wasn't looking out for their best interest and wasn't building something that they wanted to spend their hard-earned money on. And you throw in the economics, the government workers not getting paid, a lot of young people struggling to find that entertainment dollar to go to games because of the housing market and the tough job market. It's not that people don't love the Senators, but I feel like as a community and as a team, there was a lot of trust that was lost over a decade. And that trust is starting to come back. And now that they're up 2-0 on the Rangers, and if they go to the Eastern Conference Final, I think you're going to start to see that trust finally get repaired. So that's one of my favorite storylines. But I love Washington and Pittsburgh. And people say, oh, no, 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 that's a tired narrative. They've done this before. No, if Alex Ovechkin loses here again to Pittsburgh, we're always going to look at Alex Ovechkin as that great player, but he's always going to have the word but attached to his name. You're always going to say, but he never won that big game. But he could never conquer Sidney Crosby in those big, meaningful games. Crosby owned him at every single level. And this Washington team on paper, Steve, he's better than Pittsburgh, and maybe is the best Washington team Ovechkin and the Capitals have ever had since he stepped foot in the league. If they find a way to lose again, we're always going to talk about that Capitals team as being good, but could never win that big game. So I'm really interested in that series and the star power in it, and how we always forget about one of the best pure playoff performers of all time, who never gets any recognition, Evgeny Malkin. He's been a storyline. He's been incredible. So I love that series for all those reasons. Even more and the Ottawa Senators being where they are right now. Yeah, and you also take into account that Pittsburgh's done all that with Matt Murray injured and Fleury, just a feel-good story there. Um, talking about the Ottawa Senators still, 
We're going to talk about some NHL awards, and these NHL awards in particular, I chose these because they're going to generate the most debate. It's it's more like flip a coin, you know, pick a card, any card kind of thing. All of all, all of these candidates uh, deserve to be in the conversation. We're going to start off with the Norris Trophy. You have Brent Burns, a top 10 scorer in the league during the regular season, one goal shy of 30 on the year. Victor Hedman had 16 goals and 72 points in 79 games, one, one point ahead of Eric Carlson. And he was second in power play points overall. And then you look at Eric Carlson and the season that he had. He blocked over 200 shots and recorded 71 points in the same year, something that I don't think I've ever seen happen, uh, at least in my years following the NHL. Who do you got winning the Norris this year? I'm going to say Eric Carlson. And and that's going to be tough because I think a lot of people will say, look, you're from Ottawa, you're a fan. That's why you're going to go with Eric Carlson. But here's the thing with Eric Carlson. I mentioned it before, but just how he's bought in defensively and how Guy Boucher has been able to work with him, and just seeing Carlson's willingness now to do whatever it takes to win is something that is incredible to watch. And finally now that the Sens are at this stage and more of the national audience can actually see this player outside of the Ottawa region, people are really starting to believe that this is a generational talent. And nothing against Brent Burns or Victor Hedman. I felt like Brent Burns started off great this year, and it was his trophy to lose. But what Carlson was able to do with this Ottawa Senators group that went through so many challenges, and the way he's performing the playoffs too, Steve. I mean, he's playing with two hairline fractures in his heel. And you can't tell. He's making all these plays. Exactly. He's making all these plays. He looks fantastic out there. And you, you just can't. Say enough good things about him. What's going to hurt Eric Carlson? And we see this with awards, especially in the NHL, is there might be voter fatigue, which I think would be a huge disservice to Eric Carlson. I would put Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby as the two top players right now, but right there challenging them. I could even put Eric Carlson ahead of some of those guys. Is the Swede? He's done so many good things for this team. So I'm going to put Eric Carlson there as my vote to win the North. Well, when when I look at all these gifted defensemen like all of them had 70 plus points this year all of them did super great things for their teams um tampa almost makes the playoffs on victor hedman's play alone other than nikita kucherov as well other than nikita kucherov victor hedman's probably their best player um but just when i look at these awards where it's like a two-horse race or a three-horse race i look at who does the simple things better? Like for the Calder Trophy, for example, with Matthews and Line. I mean, you look at Austin Matthews. He scored eight game winners as a rookie, two shy of Ricard Raquel's NHL leading 10 game winners. 76 takeaways put him fourth in the league, not amongst rookies in the league. And then you look at Carlson, blocked over 200 shots. For the most part of this year, he led the entire league in blocked shots, finished second to Chris Russell. Um, and it validates my point even further. How many times have you seen a guy get over 70 points and block over 200 shots in the same season? You look at Brent Burns, 36 in the league in block shots this year. Victor Hedman was 50th. And if he loses this year because Brent Burns was a better offensive defenseman, I find it's going to be very ironic because a guy named Drew Doughty won last year. Despite recording the worst offensive numbers out of the three nominees, the other two were Carlson and Burns. Drew Doughty's team was a first-round exit, Burns played better than him, and yet he still won the award. This year, I find Carlson is the better all-around player. He's shown us statistically. His team's in the second round. 
Burns was a non-existent force in the playoffs versus Edmonton, with the exception of Game 4 when he got three points. Hedman's team didn't make it into the playoffs. But if they give it to Burns, they're giving it to the guy with the best offensive stats instead of the guy with the better overall numbers. And if Carlson loses, it's because because another guy had better stats than he did offensively, as opposed to last year when he lost the award for not being the better all-around guy. Even though he got 82 points in 82 games last year, that's a tough message to send out that you know the same reason that you lost the award the year before is the same reason why you should have won the award this year, but you didn't. No, you're exactly right. And, and the, the block shots is the big one here because that's where I think people don't realize how much this guy is sacrificing each and every play. And when people say you know how he's bought in defensively and how he's so much more defensive-minded, it's his willingness to block shots. And when you have over 200 block shots, that's incredible. One guy that did that a lot in the Senators' uniform was Anton Volchenko. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't even know. I'd have to look back at the numbers, Steve, but I don't know how many shots Anton Volchenko blocked in a season and what his career high was, but I would argue that Eric Carlson's right up there with Anton Volchenko in terms of a willingness to just block shots. And that's why I think Eric Carlson's going to walk away here with another Norris trophy, and it's not the last one he's going to win. This guy is still a young player. He's got plenty of hockey ahead of him, and I'm just excited to see the next steps he takes in his career now. Yeah, a a third straight year where he's been nominated for the Norris a fourth time in the last six years. Let's move on to the Vezina Trophy now. I know it's tough to beat out Sergei Bobrovsky, Carey Price, and Braden Holpe, but Cam Talbot should be on this list. He played in 73 games, won 42 of them, faced the second-most shots in the NHL this year. On two occasions, he started on back-to-back nights. In 38 of his 73 appearances, he faced 30 or more shots. On four occasions, he had to face 40 or more shots. And people forget... When the Oilers had Taylor Hall and Al Yakupov on their team, as well as the likes of Ryan Nugent Hopkins and Jordan Eberle, when they first arrived, the big knock on that team and why they couldn't get into the playoffs was defense and goaltending. Cam Talbot has been steady as she goes for this team and really quietly been the difference as to why this team is where they are at this point, still competing in the playoffs, making the playoffs, period. And two wins away from the Western Conference Finals. And when you consider what they have behind Cam Talbot. Laurent Brassois hasn't really had much of an NHL resume. Jonas Gustafsson's been in the league a while, but I'm going to be blunt, he played awful whenever he played, and he was actually put on waivers at one point uh, in the season. So they've really had to rely on this guy a lot. And while it's tough to leave him off this list, he's kind of getting robbed here, in my opinion. No, I I agree with you, Steve, and... It's so tough when you look at these awards. They come out during the – the nominees come out during the playoffs, yet sometimes you have guys in the playoffs who just become world beaters and capture our attention. And mm-hmm. I feel like we're, we're doing the same thing. We're watching a star blossom before our eyes with Cam Talbot. And I think what happens is in the Western Conference, a lot of us out here in the East just don't see him enough. And I hate to use that as a crutch, but – just look at the nominees. They're all from the Eastern Conference. Carey Price, big market in Montreal, Braden Holpe in Washington, D.C. Now, Bobrovsky is an interesting one in Columbus because I would argue that the Columbus Blue Jackets had an incredible season. Their five-game loss to the Penguins I think is really going to hurt them, but they were challenging for the President's Trophy this year because of Sergei Bobrovsky, mm-hmm. how good he was. So I think he should be the one that gets considered um, now I think this is going to come down to Price and Holtby, and I think Holtby might win it this year. I really do think that Holtby has a chance, 
and he can still prove himself here in these Stanley Cup playoffs. He can help Washington get by the Pittsburgh Penguins. But you're right, I think Cam Talbot should be there, but no one's kidding. If Cam Talbot and the Edmonton Oilers end up going to a Stanley Cup final and winning a Stanley Cup, Cam Talbot will have a last laugh. Yeah, I'm sure that hardware speaks for itself there. Maybe give him the consummate trophy, too, while you're at it if he wins that. But, uh, yeah, no no doubt uh, Cam Talbot has had a great year, but um, I am... I, I guess probably the argument you can make is, well, they also have Connor McDavid too, but and Leon Dreisaitl, who has also been pretty good for them. Uh, I think that also kind of hurt Cam Talbot as well. Uh, taking a look at the Jack Adams Award, I mean, all these awards that we're talking about, you know, talking about who should be on the list uh, and who was left off, man, it's going to be tough to just pick a winner. Um, but at the start of this year, I didn't know what the Ottawa Senators were going to be. They had, like I said before, they had to overcome adversity numerous times throughout the year. They got through those bumps in a row. They're a better team. And they have an identity now. Yet, Guy Boucher is not on this list. It comes down to John Tortorella with the Columbus Blue Jackets, Mike Babcock of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and Todd McClellan, the coach of the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, should Guy Boucher have been on this list? I think he should have. And I think he deserves a lot of credit. We've talked a lot about Eric Carlson and how he's been able to tailor his game. But he has never been better than under Guy Boucher. So he deserves a whole lot of credit there, Steve. But the guys you just mentioned took teams that were down in the dust, were awful, and it led them to having great seasons. Like in Toronto, they went from being last place, they were a lottery team last year, and they were only a couple bounces away from maybe pulling off one of the biggest upsets in the first round, maybe that we've ever seen if they were able to beat the Washington Capitals. And Mike Babcock deserves a whole ton of credit for that. And for Todd McClellan, he finally has been able to get a group of young and talented Edmonton Oilers to realize their potential, and he's got them only a couple wins away from the Western Conference Final. And John Tortorella, I mean, he hasn't made a whole lot of friends in the media, but look what he was able to do with really a star-laden team in Columbus. He got the most out of that group, got them to believe. And yes, I know they got beaten five games by the Pittsburgh Penguins, but they were a really good team in the regular season. So... I have no problem with the three men that are in the Jack Adams running right now, but the Jack Adams has always been a trophy that, to me, has lost its, lost its credibility. I in mean, fact, some would argue it's cursed because I've seen yeah. a, a couple of a couple of years or the last couple of years people win it, and then a few years later they're fired. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're right. It's kind of the kiss of death at hockey. And oh, when I look at the Jack Adams too, I can't believe that this is Mike Babcock here, a chance to win his first ever. Jack Adams. Yeah, hard, hard to believe. He's the highest paid coach. There's a reason the Maple Leafs went out and got him. He's won Olympic gold. He's won Stanley Cups. He took an Anaheim team in 03 to one win away from defeating the New Jersey Devils, and they weren't even supposed to be there. He's had so many chances to win a Jack Adams and led so many great teams, yet he's never won it. So that's kind of a black eye on the award, I think, because Mike Babcock really should have won multiple Jack Adams by now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a quick check. The Leafs had 69 points a year ago, dead last in the NHL. They had 95 points and were a playoff team this year. Uh, the Oilers, 70 points last year, second to last. Uh, this year, they got 103 points, finished second in their division, and almost overtook Anaheim for first in the Pacific as well. And then the Jackets went from a bottom five team in the league to a top five team in the league. They had 76 points in the lottery pick a year ago. This year, 108 points. So it's pretty tough to top those accomplishments. It's sad that Boucher was the odd man out, but it's it's tough to leave uh, towards McClellan and Babcock off that list, uh, either one of them. Uh, both All three deserved um, a shot at this award. 
Now, uh, the NHL draft lottery was uh, a couple of days ago. Colorado went from having the best chances at winning the lottery to fourth overall, not even a top three pick. Um, and this is the fifth time in the last six years the team with the best odds failed to snag the first overall selection. You also look at Vancouver went from second to fifth, Arizona going from fourth to seventh, and Vegas, who had the third best odds, uh, hold the sixth overall pick. I think the worst possible scenario is a team that's never played a game in this league and they get the first overall pick. That would have everyone up in arms. But um, the big story is not the fact that the Devils um, jumped from fifth to first and get the draft lottery pick, the top pick. It's the fact that Philadelphia had the 13th best odds. They somehow climb 11 spots to second and almost win the lottery. It came down to the final pick. Have we ever seen a lottery like this where you, figuratively speaking, had to pick your jaw off the floor? Well, I remember when the Chicago Blackhawks won it, and they got Patrick Kane that year. And you're a big stats guy, and you've got a great memory for this, Steve, but I believe they had a 0.8% chance (laughs) at getting the first overall pick, and they wound up getting it. And, look, people are going to be up in arms here. If you're in Colorado, you're upset this morning. And, you know, if you're a fan, like in Vancouver, too, you're definitely upset this morning. But to me... This is a good way to go about it if you're the NHL because now this will make it make teams think twice about tanking. Like, what if the Toronto Maple Leafs last year didn't wind up with Austin Matthews and a team like Philadelphia, who had such slim odds, moved up ahead of the Toronto Maple Leafs? It would really make teams think twice about just like trading off all their assets, telling their fans it doesn't matter, we're going to the draft. I hate when teams do that. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. I don't believe that you have to tank in order to be successful. There's a lot of examples of teams that have picked near the top of the NHL draft and have not been successful. Look at the Florida Panthers, the Edmonton Oilers. For a while, couldn't get it right, even though they were picking in the top five, it seemed like, year after year. So to see a team like Philadelphia jump all the way up there, I think it just adds great drama to what has been kind of a tired TV spectacle in the NHL draft. And I hate to say that because a lot of people in the media work hard at making that somewhat of an interesting product to watch and consume from an audience standpoint. But I was happy to see the New Jersey's of the world and Philadelphia's of the world jump up there and, and jump up so high in the draft team. I really was. And you'll also look at the players they have in the Metro division. Somehow that division's going to get even stronger now, which is tough to believe. Um, but, um, I I think the most mind-boggling draft that comes to mind for me is the Connor McDavid draft where the Oilers, I think, had the third or the fourth best odds, and they somehow get the first overall pick, and everyone's just like, really, you need another top pick? And you probably get the best one since Crosby? Like, <laughs> you, must have a, you must have a lucky horseshoe or something. But, um, yeah, it, th- this, this draft was certainly right up there. Um, another question, or a couple of questions that uh, – comes to mind uh, looking at these draft results. By the way, the Stars also had the eighth-best odds. They get a top-three pick as well. Um, you look at the Devils, um, they could pick either Nolan Patrick, they could pick uh, Nico um, Hersher, or they could go with um, another guy that's uh, also uh, pretty talented. They could go with Gabe Velarde or Owen Tippett, um, Timothy Lilgren as well. Um, either way, they're going to get a difference maker um, first overall. 
Um, but you also look at the team they have right now. They have Taylor Hall, who, um, <laughs> funny enough, this is the fourth time that he's been on a team that's won the lottery. So may- maybe the secret to get winning the lottery is to get ta- Taylor Hall on your team. Uh, but they also have Camilleri, Palmieri, uh, Corey Schneider, and Goal. Uh, they also have youngsters like Mike McLeod, who we just mentioned before, playing with the Steelheads. They also have Pavel Zaka, another OHL uh, alumni. Uh, Joseph Blandizi, another OHL alumni. They're all waiting to make their splash in the big leagues. Uh, and you also have to wonder if Kovalchuk, some, for some reason, comes back, uh, what they do with him. Do they deal him in his costly contract to another team? Or do they maybe keep him around and put him on the line with one of uh, their youngsters and see how they do? It's a really interesting debate, right? And it seems like every year now we hear about Ilya Kovalchuk and his future, and it's such a complicated matter, Steve, because if he was to come back, I mean, does he become a free agent? Other owners have got to sign off on that, and you know they're not going to. I mean, if he comes back to New Jersey, that team could be pretty competitive and pretty compelling to watch Mm -hmm. for the reasons you just mentioned. Like, Corey Schneider is quietly a really good goaltender. You have a... Taylor Hall, who we know can score goals. You add another prolific goal scorer in Ilya Kovalchuk, and you add maybe a Nico Heischer or a Nolan Patrick, who you can just drop in as your number one, number two center to play with those players on the wing. They're already a pretty intriguing team that I want to go and pay money to see next year. So, yeah, they've just kind of really wiped their hands clean here and said, you know what, we ended up winning this thing here, and they got a real good chance at turning that franchise around in a hurry maybe. Now, speaking of turning franchises around, uh, Colorado's probably going to have to do the same because everyone was looking over their roster and wondering who would be sent packing if they got the first overall pick, but now they're not. Um, is Saturday's result going to change things? Are they more tempted to deal Landis Cog or Duchesne for defensive help? Uh, in my opinion, I still don't think they have a choice. Uh, I think a big move is going to come at some point, um, but I think if they got Nolan Patrick, that would only speed up the entire process because... Um, once Edmonton got McDavid, you know, the whole talk was, okay, they got to move somebody. They they need defensive help, and um, they ended up moving Taylor Hall for Adam Larson, which, in my opinion, they should have still got more than just Adam Larson. But Larson's fit in pretty well. Uh, but anyways, do, do you still see um, maybe a move on draft day where the Colorado Avalanche trade one of their current superstars? I do, and I really believe that Matt Duchesne is the guy they have to shop. Uh, there might be no more overrated player than Matt Duchesne. When I break down his numbers and people talk about this guy and what he could fetch in terms of a return, like I remember when the Montreal Canadiens were in the rumor mill of getting a guy like Matt Duchesne and what they were going to have to give up in order to get him. I look at his numbers, Steve. He has not produced. Like He might be the most overrated player right now in the NHL, and I think if you're the Colorado Avalanche, you've got to get talent all over your roster. Not only on the back end, you need some better forwards like to fill out your back nine. You've also got to get a goaltender. I mean, they've got so many holes they have to plug. So I think Matt Duchesne is part of that. And I don't know what he's going to be able to get or garner on the, on the trade market, but you can definitely bank that teams are going to be more trigger-happy at the draft. So I think they should explore that option. But, yeah, for a team like Colorado, they were banking on getting a top pick this year. They're going to pick fourth. They're still going to have a chance of getting a really good player, but they have to look at trading a Matt Duchesne. I think Gabriel Landeskog is a, a tremendous leader. From what I've read about him and how much people respect him and how young he is and how he carries himself, I think he holds more value 
than a Matt Duchesne, but it'll be interesting to see how many teams are going to circle the wagon on a guy like Matt Duchesne around draft time. All right, before you go, what's the easiest way people can get a hold of you on social media? Follow me on Twitter, C underscore Teske. The C is capitalized, so is the T. I post a lot of stuff on quick sports takes. I also plug my podcast a lot. You can listen to it, The Good, The Bad, The Teske. Like us on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash The Good, The Bad, The Teske. I'm working on putting up a lot more content on my page, doing a lot more, more Facebook Live stuff. So those are the easiest ways to get a hold of me. All right, Colin, very much appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Anytime, Steve. My pleasure. All right, that was Colin Teske, the jack-of-all-trades. I'm Stephen Ellsworth. We'll talk again on the Lace Em Up podcast.